Thanks for listening to the Frontline AudioCast, the enhanced audio version of our documentaries. We also produce a podcast, The Frontline Dispatch, available wherever you get your podcasts. Right now, here is the AudioCast of our program, Shots Fired. In Utah, a record number of police shootings. It's not just a problem in Salt Lake City, it's a problem throughout our whole state. Frontline on the Salt Lake Tribune, investigate training. Do not hesitate. Accountability. Do you want your officers to be the frontline defense for mental illness going untreated in the community? Well, then there's going to be some bad outcomes. The bar of lawful conduct on which you can use lethal force is very low for law enforcement, but it is very high for prosecution for the purposes of accountability. And racial disparities. Utah is 1.5% black, but in the last 10 years, our database shows black people made up 7% of police shootings. Now, as part of Frontline's local journalism initiative, Shots fired, suspect down. Shots fired. Frontline is made possible by contributions to your PBS station from viewers like you. Thank you. And by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Major support is provided by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. Additional support is provided by the Abrams Foundation, committed to excellence in journalism. The John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More at macfound.org. Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues. And by the Frontline Journalism Fund, with major support from John and Joanne Hagler and additional support from Ku and Patricia Ewan. Additional support for Shots Fired is provided by the Hollyhock Foundation and the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. This program contains mature content. Viewer discretion is advised. In the summer of 2020, a group of murals went up in Salt Lake City. They included faces of people killed by police over the past decade. They went up amid the growing reckoning over police violence around the country. And after Salt Lake City police officers killed 22-year-old Bernardo Palacios Carvajal. Frontline reporter Taylor Eldridge retraced his steps from where police had been called to a nearby motel over reports of an armed robbery. Officer stopped here. They said the suspect may be outside of room number three right now, but that could also be you guys. 
The officers see Bernardo right there. The officers shouted to him. Hey! Show your hand! Show me your hand! And then ran after him. A sergeant arrived. Hey, drop it! Drop it! Drop it! The officers spotted something that turned out to be a gun. So Bernardo comes around the corner here, and the chase ensues down this alleyway. Palacios Carvajal ran across the street. He's got a gun in his pocket. He's reaching in his rice bin. Drop on! Drop on! Drop on! Drop on! As he's running, he trips on this curb here. He stumbled, dropped the gun, and picked it up three times. More officers arrived. Grab it! The sergeant yelled to tase him. But instead, thirty four shots. Palacios Carvajal ignited outrage in Salt Lake City. Bernardo's sister, Karina. Why did they have to shoot him that many times? That was like my main thing that I kept like wondering or asking, like, why did it have to be that many, that yeah. many shots? Because unfortunately where Bernardo was shot down by the police, Nobody deserves to die in 22. He left this world alone, like he was laying on the ground. It was just him by himself, um, just surrounded by cops. New developments in the officer-involved shooting that took the life of 22-year-old Bernardo Palacios Carvajal. The killing was ruled justified. Use of deadly force by Salt Lake City Police was ruled justified. Ruled the shooting was justified. The case became a tipping point here. This has been a case that we've seen a lot of public outcry. At the time, Utah was on pace for a record number of police shootings, something the state's largest newspaper had been documenting. After Bernardo was killed, it hit this tipping point where people were upset and they wanted answers. They were hungry for more information about how these shootings are happening. Jessica Miller covers the police for the Salt Lake Tribune. There are a lot of police shootings that happen in Utah every year. We've seen this increase over time. 
It's not just a problem in Salt Lake City. It's a problem throughout our whole state. Miller, her colleague Peyton Harkins, and others had been building a unique database of every time officers fire their weapons at someone, even if they miss. In 2014, one of my colleagues did a story that showed that over a five-year period, fatal police shootings was the second leading cause of homicide in our state. The police were killing more people than drug dealers and gang members. And then in 2018, we had this record-breaking year where the police shot at 30 people. Those were big numbers. With cases mounting in the state, Frontline and the Salt Lake Tribune teamed up and began trying to understand the patterns and factors that go into when police fire their weapons, fatally or not. Bernardo was the 11th person who was shot so far this year. Last year, 2019, we had three shootings by this time. There is no source in Utah that tracks police shootings statewide. Well, right now, most of our data right, is coming from the police reports. Mm -hmm. Frontline and the Tribune filed hundreds of records requests. What record are you looking for? I've requested a bunch of police shooting stuff. The team combed through court documents, 911 transcripts, internal investigations, media reports, examined body camera footage, and spoke to law enforcement officials, experts, and families. Don't worry to my son. He shoots him. 226 shootings, more than half of them fatal over the past 10 years. In some cases, the available data is incomplete and the number's too small to draw broad conclusions. But as we began looking at the cases, the vast majority had one thing in common. They were ruled justified, just like the Palacios Carbajal shooting in 2020 declined to file criminal charges against either officer for his use of deadly force. No one has ruled on more of these cases than longtime Salt Lake County District Attorney Sim Gill. After ruling on the Palacios Carbajal case, Gill reached his own tipping point and called for reforms to state laws on the use of force. We need to start thinking about why we are shooting at our citizens and to narrow the conditions under which we do that. There are times, many times, when those were, they may be legally justified, but were they absolutely necessary? But those are not the questions we get to ask. Instead, Gill said he has to focus on a key question that arises in almost every shooting. If a law enforcement come across somebody and the situation rises to a level where they feel threatened or feel that somebody else is going to be harmed, the law creates a justifiable use of that lethal force. Out of more than 100 police shootings he has reviewed, he has filed charges against officers three times, though none of them led to convictions. When District Attorney Gill declined to bring charges in the Palacios Carbajal case, many in Salt Lake had had enough. What happened to Bernardo is a nightmare, and it's the formula. Black Lives Matter! Lex Scott is the founder of Utah's Black Lives Matter chapter. She has spent years raising concerns about police shootings, especially among people of color. And it's the same exact process every time. The police officer claims he fears for his life. 
Sam Gill holds a press conference where he shows bits and pieces slowed down of the shooting, and then he justifies the shooting, and then it happens again um, over and over. Some of the cases that Gill has reviewed and ruled justified include people who turned out to be unarmed, like the shooting of Dylan Taylor in 2014. Dylan's aunt, Gina Thane. It's a constant heartache no matter what. But when somebody dies of such a violent, horrific way, you can't make sense of it no matter how hard you try. Dylan's brother, Jarrell, was with him the day he was killed. Me, Dylan, my cousin Adam, we're heading to see my mom and dad's grave. As the men were walking, a woman called 911, saying she saw one of them flashing a gun. The kid flashed a gun as he was walking by. They're looking for trouble. What race was he? Um, black? No, they're Mexican, right? Are you or anyone else in immediate danger? No. Officer Braun Cruz responded to the call with two other officers. We walked in the 7-Eleven. Grabbed a couple of tall cans. And we walked out. Cruz and the other officers were waiting for them in the parking lot. Their body cameras running. We didn't think they were there for us. We even broke the law. Adam went one way, Dylan went the other. They went up to my brother, who had his earphones in his ears. According to Officer Cruz's account later, Dylan refused to stop or heed commands. Get your hands out now! Dylan doesn't think they're gonna shoot him. We've had guns drawn on us our whole life. You know, so nine times out of 10, nobody shoots, including the police. Then Dylan turned around. Get your hands out! He made a move with his hand that Cruz mistook for drawing a gun. Get him out! Cruz fired. Shot fired, shot fired. Get me medical here now. Hand, give me your hand. After he handcuffed him, he's patting him down and doing all that. What the hell were you reaching for, man? You can hear the nervousness on the body cam. I don't, I don't know where the other shot went. I can't, I can't find a weapon on him. That Dylan didn't have a weapon wasn't in dispute when District Attorney Gill reviewed the shooting. The question was whether Officer Cruz had grounds to believe there was a threat, whether he feared for his life or others. Officer Cruz declined to be interviewed. In his interview with investigators after the shooting, he repeatedly talked about the fear he felt during the encounter. District Attorney Sim Gill. The way he pulls his hand, he lifts his shirt up and brings his hand up, and the officer says that I reasonably believe that he, he was making a drawing motion. And, and at that point, the question was, was that reasonable for him based on the totality of the circumstances? That was a very close call. And we said, at that point, given what he knew, uh, that, uh, that it was not unreasonable for him to fear for his life. 
but Dylan didn't actually pose a threat. Well, the officer certainly perceived it based on the information and the conduct that he was engaged in. He said, this is the threat I perceived. So the question became for us, can we objectively say that that didn't happen? I'm not saying that he was right. What I'm saying is I cannot prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he's unreasonable in that belief. Dylan's family filed suit against Officer Cruz and the department, but a judge dismissed the case, finding the use of deadly force objectively reasonable. The shooting still troubles the Salt Lake police chief at the time, Chris Burbank, who has become an advocate for police reform. We failed. Now, I'm not saying Officer Cruz failed. What I'm saying is the Salt Lake City Police Department should have done better because a young man lost his life. Of the 230 people we found who were shot at over the past decade in Utah, 132 had a gun, 84 had some other kind of weapon, and 14, like Dylan Taylor, had no weapon at all, according to the law enforcement documents we reviewed. We asked former Chief Burbank about concerns over police shootings, now and during his tenure leading the state's largest department. If you start to evaluate shootings on whether or not they're necessary, you could argue that the majority of shootings are not necessary given the totality, right, the overall event and every circumstance, and why are we showing up? Right? Why are we not holding law enforcement ourselves to this question of, why are the police there in the first place? Why are we calling them? Why are we involving them? But we've established a culture that if for any reason you make me feel uncomfortable, I can call the police and the police come and deal with you. The issue came into sharp focus just a few months ago with the case of a man named Chad Breinholt, who had been killed in police custody. The shooting happened in the basement of the West Valley City Police Department in 2019. How could it have happened inside the West Valley Police Department? At the Salt Lake Tribune, reporters began questioning what happened. Jessica Miller. The police department releases the body cam footage of this incident. And it's this like very highly edited nine-minute video. You will now see portions of the video that include officers taking the shoe from Mr. Breinholt. There's so much context that is missing. Like, what led up to this? And it was just so different than any other shooting that we've covered. And the officer fires a single shot. We decided that we wanted to get the entire body cam footage. After six months of appeals, the department gave the newspaper several hours of footage leading up to the incident. We just got the video for Chad Breinholtz's case. The police are called to this long-term care facility where Breinholt was at. His girlfriend worked there. Good, how are you? Pretty good. What's going on today, dude? I don't know. It's my car. The girlfriend tells the police that Brian Holt told her that, that he took all these pills so that he would die. I got a phone call from him while I was here, and he took like eight or nine pills. Yeah. They were just concerned about 
him being safe. But then Officer Atkin and Officer Matt Lane decide to do a breathalyzer test. Um, you told us you drove here. Yeah. Very quickly, the tone changes. It's not just, can we help this person? Now this is a DUI investigation. Do you have any weapons? No. Hey, listen to me. Do you have any weapons or anything? No, I didn't drive here, though. Then they take him to the police department for a more accurate breathalyzer test. They ask him for his name, and he gives a fake name. Ooh, that's a class A misdemeanor for giving somebody else's information to a police officer. They just keep threatening him with more and more charges. After about 45 minutes, he falls to the floor. A lot of uh, drunk people have peed on that floor. I'm not sure you want to lay there. The officers left Brian Holt on the floor for more than 10 minutes as they waited for a medical crew to arrive. There's really no mention during any of this that he's suicidal or that he's taken pills. <laughs> By now, Brian Holt had been handcuffed in police custody for almost two hours. He wouldn't consent to a breathalyzer test, and so they needed to write a warrant, and that's when Sergeant Longman comes into the department. Okay, what do we got? I looked him up in our database, and I saw that he'd been in two other shootings. Shortly after Sergeant Tyler Longman arrived, Brian Holt told the officers he wanted to go to a psychiatric hospital known as Uni. Let me, let me tell you this right now, okay? I'm not going to sit here all night and play games with you. You've already wasted our fire department's time by having them come out for some bull****, okay? I'm not taking you to uni, I'm taking you to jail. That's where you're going, okay? So, cut the bull****. No, you're not going to uni. You are going to jail. While Sergeant Longman helped to process the warrant, Brian Holt remained handcuffed for another 30 minutes. Sit down. Oh, sit down. <laughs> okay, good try. Yeah, I'm joking. Okay. They know he doesn't have a gun in his pants. They searched him um, when they arrested him. A little more time goes by, and Brian Holt starts messing around with his shoe. Is there a gun in your shoe, too? Sit down. Sit down. Sit down on my shoe. Okay, sit down. Okay, sit down. All right. I'll get the gun out. You sit down. Stay down. Stay down. Okay. Stay seated. All right. You don't want to fight with me. You definitely don't want to fight with this guy. Just sit your ass and stay. Tell you what, give me your shoe. Yeah. Not getting my shoe. Sergeant Longman watches. I got it. Okay, he's got my gun. He's got my gun. And then rushes in. You're about to die, my friend. And fires. Shut go, let go. Don't play out the gun. Shots fired, shots fired. You good, you good? Shots fired, we're close to work. Out. Wait, door. Out. 
the West Valley City Police Department conducted an internal investigation. You're good. And while they were critical of the way Breinholtz's arrest was handled, they said Sergeant Longman acted within department policy. City Hall. going off camera. No one in the department would agree to an interview about the incident. Breinholtz's family has filed a federal lawsuit against them, alleging Sergeant Longman and the other officers violated his civil rights. Let me say before the onset that our team met with Chad Breinholtz's family early on in the process. District Attorney Sim Gill announced his ruling on the shooting last summer. Our hearts go out to them and we forward to them our condolences for the loss of their family member. Sorry, these are just always tough. Uh, Sergeant Longman was faced with a deadly force situation in which it appeared possible that unless Mr. Brian Holt was stopped, he would not stop grabbing Officer Atkins' gun from his holster. Under Utah law and under the facts of the circumstances that we are at, I cannot prove beyond a reasonable doubt that his belief was unreasonable. Critics are going to say that they give a handcuffed man who seems very impaired, why can't they use any other type of force to get his hands off that gun? Well, and I think the critics would be right. I'm not saying that they wouldn't be right in that criticism. While this is uh, justified under the law, this was something that was preventable. This was something that was avoidable. And that's why I struggled with it. The shooting of Chad Breinholt raised many of the issues we were seeing in our reporting. As with Breinholt, we found 94 other cases where police determined or family members reported that a person had a mental health issue, mental disability, or was suicidal. And like Sergeant Longman, who'd killed two other people in his career, both ruled justified, we found 33 other officers had been involved in at least one other shooting in their career. Police use of force is not usually some like well thought out discretionary decision, right? It's like an oh moment for most of us. Ian Adams is the head of Utah's Fraternal Order of Police. Over the course of two interviews, we shared the data we collected with him and asked about the trends we were seeing. Adams said that it's difficult to evaluate trends with data that only tracks police shootings without comparing them to all encounters with police even the ones that don't end in violence. Information he conceded isn't available in the state. The data around these things is so incredibly bad. And uh, that's a national problem, it's not a Utah problem, but we don't have good uh, single source reporting like across a whole lot of criminal justice outcomes, including police use of force. Um, so I don't know, and, and nobody does. Nobody, know, nobody can tell you what drives specifically police shootings. We know that it's some combination of, there are crime effects, but a lot of it's driven through contact, right? Like the number of contacts that officers have with the public. 
He also said the number of officers involved in multiple shootings doesn't necessarily indicate a problem. In your database, for example, is an officer who has a patrol officer, brand new rookie, got shot in the face with a shotgun and returned fire. So several years later, he's in a specialty unit now that does um, violent uh, fugitive apprehension, which is a high-risk specialized assignment within policing. And so he was involved in another shooting. What's the lesson there? Well, I don't know. Drawing broader philosophical lessons off of that sort of case is difficult for me. But so long as we're asking individuals to go into these situations, then we as a community have to accept the responsibility for those bad outcomes and stop pretending that it's an individual culpability problem, that there's something wrong with the officer. What do you want officers to do? Do you want officers to be your frontline defense for homelessness? Do you want your officers to be the frontline defense for mental illness going untreated in the community? Well, then there's gonna be some bad outcomes. During our months of reporting with the Salt Lake Tribune on police shootings in Utah, there was another aspect to the issue we were trying to understand, the racial breakdown of people shot at. Reporter Taylor Eldridge. In this chart, the yellow lines are white people and the red lines are people of color. When we tallied shootings by race and ethnicity, we discovered that a third of the people shot at in the past 10 years, 76 of the 230, were racial and ethnic minorities, though they make up only a quarter of Utah's population. 48 were Hispanic. 22 of them were killed, like Bernardo Palacios Carbajal, Dylan Taylor, and Chad Breinholt. And where Utah really stands out is in its shootings of black people. So Utah is 1.5% black. But in the last 10 years, our database shows that black people made up 7% of police shootings. Over the 10-year period, 16 black people were shot at, nine of them fatally. The experts in crime statistics we spoke to said that to better understand these racial disparities, more data about police interactions overall would be needed. But when we shared the numbers with the current head of Black Lives Matter in Utah, Ray Duckworth, she said they reinforced the concerns she and others have long had. Hearing those numbers, like, I'm 30, and, like, I survived 30 years of those numbers. And um, in a sad, sick way, it's inspiring to keep going because I survived 30 years of that, so. Yeah. We are failing. Utah is failing because we're just... We're not paying attention, we're not talking, we're not promoting changes. I have a daughter and I'm a single parent and I'm black and I live here and I stick out like a sore thumb. She has her own experience with police shootings. In 2019, her cousin, Bobby, was fatally shot in Wellington, Utah. Suicidal subject at the Wellington Pond in Wellington. A family friend called 911 and said Duckworth was suicidal and holding a knife. What we see from the, the body cam footage, the officer showed up, knew him from his case prior. This is not okay. What can't you do, man? So he had prior knowledge of who Bobby was, knew that he was 
having like other stuff going on. What's the plan here, man? What's the what's your end goal? I'm not gonna shoot you if that's what you want. That's the last thing we want to do, brother. We want to help you. After a few minutes, Duckworth started approaching the officer from the field, knife in hand. Put the knife down. I don't want to shoot you, but I will. Put the knife down. He's approaching. Got a knife in his hand. Put it down, man. It ain't worth it. Still not listening to command, still has a knife. Put it down or I'll shoot you. Put it down. Price, five or eight, shots fired, suspect down. It's just, I just wish I had a little bit more time so we could have had that conversation where I, I'm like, hey, you know, the police are dangerous. Like, the, the police might kill us too. The officer who shot Duckworth was cleared of any wrongdoing. In response to questions, the Utah Department of Public Safety objected to our comparison of the number of people shot at to their population size, saying it presents an inaccurate depiction of law enforcement's contact with communities of color and is akin to having facts but not reaching the truth. They provided other data, arrest totals broken down by race, which showed a similar racial disparity. While incomplete, they said this data was a better indicator of which Utahns are at risk of being shot by police. But in the cases we reviewed, we found that police had also shot at people they had not been called to arrest, including bystanders and those experiencing mental health issues. And there was something else that stood out. Over and over, officers referenced their training. law enforcement is to stop the threat. It's not to hurt someone. It's not to kill someone. It's to Police get their basic training in Utah during 16 weeks at Peace Officers Standards and Training, known as POST. They spend time inside the classroom and out, and towards the end, go through five days of intensive scenario training. Salt Lake Tribune reporter Peyton Harkins and producer Abby Ellis were allowed to observe sessions over several months. What is the most important thing we gotta take care of when we first get any scene? Officer and scene safety. Sergeant Scott Lauritsen oversees the scenario training at post. Do we continue our investigation? The absolute most important thing is officer safety. So all of the other procedural stuff that they learn will be at their own individual agencies. And so we really highlight that officer safety issue. Do we allow people to point guns at us? No. We go home. Those that we're dealing with will go home if they choose to, right? But we go home, we protect ourselves, protect our partners, protect those innocent bystanders. Was there anything that happened during the argument? Hey, Any? why are the cops here? Hey, the cadets are put through role playing from traffic stops, you ran that stop sign over there. domestic violence situations, <laughs> to dealing with someone experiencing a mental health crisis. We have role players and an evaluator. We have guidelines and kind of how we want the role players to respond to certain stimulus that the cadets are giving them. Is there a weapon behind there? I haven't seen one. You don't know. Will our officer safety become laxed in these or will it become heightened? 
But what are you seeing? Relax. I just want to get down to his level. Okay, so you're trying to be empathetic at the sacrifice of your officer safety. And so as we're going through these different scenarios, we're trying to get them to understand the importance of, if I'm going to be safe, I have to understand everything that's going on around me. Cassie, police, come out and talk to us, would you? You're not coming out. You're not coming out? The instructors push them to make life and death decisions. Put the gun down. Cassie, can you put the gun down for me? Come on, come on. Put the gun down. No, no, stop. You see the problem here? What happened to our officer safety? Why are we not recognizing that as a gun pointed at us? When you think of a gun be pointed at you, what do you think? You think this, right? Mm -hmm. Do we think of this or this or whatever it is? Is that what we think of? No. It seems casual. It doesn't seem threatening. Okay. Well, she's spinning it. And where is her finger? On the trigger, right. But that's why. So would you have shot? That's, that's really hard. No, it's not really hard. It is hard for it's me. It's really simple. Because if I shot her, and then I don't think... Do you let a gun be pointed at you? Yes or no? I want to say no, but... Do you let a gun be pointed at your partner? No. Then what's the argument? Why is it so hard? Because we have to live with it. You're in the wrong profession, my friend, if you can't live with that. How many of you have made that decision? One out of seven. You are three weeks from that being a real gun, a real bullet, a real death. And you don't know if you can live with that? Wow. How many brothers do you have out here? How many sisters? They mean less to you than some, a mental subject. You go home, you soul search, and you figure it out. And if that question hasn't been answered tomorrow, I suggest you don't come back. Being a police officer, you may in your career be required to take a life. When you're faced with that situation, if you have not come to the reality that you may have to do that, and now you're processing through it, how effective is your decision gonna be? So yeah, absolutely, to put on this badge and to put a gun on your hip to go into somebody's house to protect them, if you haven't made that decision that taking someone's life may be a possibility, it's too late then. We don't want to shoot people, okay? But who makes that decision? Bear with me for a minute. When you picture criminal, what do you think? Gangbang. If you picture somebody you love, look in the mirror and ask yourself, can I kill a kid? Can I shoot a grandma? Can I shoot a mom? Can I shoot a dad? Can I shoot a brother? Because if you can't, it's not you that's going to get hurt, it's your partner. How many of you have been to an officer's funeral? How was it? Not sure. Did you know him? I didn't. How bad would that be if that was your partner and you knew that was your fault? Life changing? Way worse. Over the past 10 years, 15 police officers died on the job in Utah. 10 of them killed by a suspect. Tribune reporter Peyton Harkins. As you're walking the halls doing these trainings, there's this 
giant memorial to all the officers in Utah who have been killed. It's, it's massive. The wall is this physical reminder of what they learn in training. If you mess up, it means either your life could be taken or your partner's life could be taken. And you're taught you don't want your name to end up on this wall. You ready? Many of the scenarios we observed would turn out to be worst case and end in a shooting. Like this one, where a woman calls 911 and says her husband and son have shot themselves. Police, is anybody in there? It's not long after the cadets show up that she ends up stabbing one of them. Hey, get off! Bang, 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 bang! Dispatch, we have an officer down, all medical. And her husband wakes up and starts firing at the others. And this one. We're just going to let you off with a warning today, okay? Where a routine traffic stop turned into a hostage situation. Scott Lauritsen. Every situation that we send police officers in doesn't require lethal force. But if we take an officer's career, how many situations are they going to be in, let's say, in a 20-year career? Thousands, right? But we only have these cadets for five, six days, maybe seven days at the most. So we have to take this experience of a 20-year career and condense that into a few days. And so we try and hit such a wide variety of scenarios to open their eyes to the possibility. But the focus on worst-case scenarios has become increasingly controversial among experts in the field who are concerned about police shootings. The essence of what we would call fear-based training is the training on the possibility of an action versus the probability of an action. Randy Shrewsbury worked as a police officer in multiple departments around the country. He now advocates for reforming police training. We showed him some of the scenarios we filmed at post. Part of the problem that we have resides in this scenario-based training because it's this kind of endless exploration of what could happen for which then officers um, in, in every circumstance of their job is feeling some level of threat. But the problem becomes is, is that when you're reacting to anecdotes or to situations that could possibly happen, you start to kind of create a narrative into the officer's mind, which is placing them on edge. Get on the ground or I'm going to shoot you. Get out! Get on the ground now! Black Lives Matter, you guys know the drill! Why did you shoot? Because large guys, they jumped out of the vehicle, they're both coming at us. Is this death or serious bodily injury? No, no. Why is our gun our first resort? The reality is, is that policing is safe as it's ever been. So it doesn't match up to this disproportionate emphasis that we place when we're constantly telling officers that at any moment they can be murdered, at any moment that they can be killed. We brought these critiques to the director of Utah's post program, Scott Stevenson. 
is it possible that by training with worst case scenarios, cadets go out into the field with a heightened sense of paranoia, seeing threats where there might not actually be threats? I think it's a valid observation, um, but I do not believe so. How would you want us to train? If, uh, if those situations are so infrequent, do you want somebody go in and going in without any type of experience at all? And if so, how do you expect them to perform? We put officers in, in ugly situations, we really do. And then we expect it to be perfect every time. If I can teach them in that situation where the potential outcome is a shooting, then maybe they'll try to avoid it. Of the 226 shootings we examined, 107 involved at least one officer who had graduated from post five years earlier or less. Post Director Scott Stevenson said that kind of statistic needed further investigation. One, I want to know each situation. I want to know if it was a, a poor choice, bad decision. And then I want to interview them to find out, okay, what in training did you gain either in the academy or in the field training experience that you relied upon to deal with that situation? And then I, could be able to, I would be able to segment and say, okay, yeah, that was learned in the, the field training. So that's an area where we may want to focus. If this were a, an unnecessary shooting um, or a, a poor choice, then I'd, well, I'd say, okay, something in field training needs to be tweaked. And then you got to go, is it, the, is it the field training officer? Is it the culture? Um, but if it's in the academy, then I can say, okay, uh, we need more hours in this area. Um, that's how I would, that's how I would start to dissect that, that statistic. In 2019, in Ogden, Utah, four officers, each with less than five years of experience, killed Giovanni Mercado in his parents' driveway. This is the original vehicle that got hit that was parked on that side. His father, Juan, and his sister, Ruby, showed us the bullet holes There's that are one. still there on the front of their house. There's one, two, That's when they were shooting at him in the ground. Juan was out of town the night it happened. His wife and children were inside. My youngest son just uh, got out of the shower. Otherwise, he couldn't possibly get hit. Giovanni had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. And on the night of August 16th, he started walking around the street with a knife in his hand. A neighbor called 911. Gentleman that's uh, at my house and he's got a knife. Okay. Well, he's not making any sense. So he's not making any sense with it. He just has a knife. He looks very confused, and then he has a knife pulled out. So he hasn't threatened anybody with it, or has he waved it around or anything? He's got it out. Okay. And he walked into my driveway. Four officers from the Ogden Police Department responded. Officer Carson Garcia graduated from post two years earlier. Officer Brandon Savinsky graduated four years earlier. 
and had been involved in a shooting nine months before. He had a civilian ride-along with him and had been directed by the department to respond to any calls that seemed interesting. An officer, Nigel Bailey, graduated from post one year earlier. He was training Officer John Polson, a probationary officer. The call wasn't in their assigned area, but Bailey later said he thought it would be a good training experience. As the officers were on their way to the Mercado's house, the family's home security camera was rolling. So A57, he was back in on our side of the fence where he should have been able to feel safe. He's turning back like he's talking to someone, but it's nobody there. It's like he's definitely having an episode. And from this point, he gets to the back part of the house. So that's where he was when the officers finally arrived. At 9 p.m., the four officers approached the Mercado's house. Drop that knife. Drop the knife now! The officers shouted at Giovanni to drop the knife and come towards them. Police, drop the knife! Knife still in hand, he started walking towards the gate. Drop, drop it! Drop that knife! Stay back, stay back! They went straight for lethal force. My son didn't even step one foot outside of his own property when they shot him dead. Yeah. And blows him from mine. All four officers were cleared of any wrongdoing. The department declined to speak to us, citing ongoing civil litigation by the Mercado family. In the investigative report, Bailey recalled a training scenario he'd done at post a year before that involved a suspect with a knife. In the scenario, when the cadets tried to retreat and not use force, one was taken hostage. Ian Adams of the Fraternal Order of Police said there are specific reasons why recently graduated officers might be involved in shootings. In policing the traditional professional um, progression here, you come out of post and you go to patrol for the first five to seven years of your career. And then there's a chance at that point usually to proceed into an investigative spot off the street. Well, where do the majority of shootings occur? They occur in patrol, not a property crimes detective, not a training officer, not somebody working in a school. In recent months, Utah lawmakers have begun making some changes. They passed bills that provide more de-escalation and mental health training to police and require agencies to collect more data on use of force. 
including every time an officer points a weapon at someone. Data is critical, because if you and I can't honestly look at what the topography, what the reality of what we're trying to address is, then we don't know what we need to do to make that change. District Attorney Sim Gill is still advocating for changes to the laws around police shootings. What do you say to people who might say the lack of accountability is contributing to this problem? I think the lack of accountability is the byproduct of the structure we have. The lack of accountability is the byproduct of the standards that we have set. There are many men and women in law enforcement who do their job honorably and with great deference to protecting our community. But the integrity of a system is not measured by the 98 that I may find justified. It's our ability to hold accountable in a meaningful way that one officer that does not follow the law. What is the moral expectation of our citizens? What do they expect from law enforcement? The question really is, do we have both the societal will and the political will to do something different? As of early November, there were 26 police shootings in Utah this year, similar to 2020's record pace. Go to pbs.org frontline for the latest reporting with our partner, the Salt Lake Tribune. It's not just a problem in Salt Lake City, it's a problem throughout our whole state. And to read more from other news organizations and our local journalism initiative, visit the Frontline Archive where you can stream more than 300 documentaries. Connect with Frontline on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and watch anytime on the PBS video app, YouTube, or pbs.org frontline. Frontline is made possible by contributions to your PBS station from viewers like you. Thank you. And by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Major support is provided by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. Additional support is provided by the Abrams Foundation, committed to excellence in journalism. The John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More at macfound.org. Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues. And by the Frontline Journalism Fund, with major support from John and Joanne Hagler and additional support from Ku and Patricia Ewan. Additional support for Shots Fired is provided by the Hollyhock Foundation and the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. Shots Fired was written, produced, and directed by Abby Ellis and reported by Taylor Eldridge, Peyton Harkins, Jessica Miller, Muna Muhammad, Sam Stecklow, and Abby Ellis. The senior producer was Frank Kewen. The managing editor of Frontline is Andrew Metz. The executive producer of Frontline is Rainey Aronson-Roth. Frontline's Shots Fired is available on Amazon Prime Video. <laughs>